Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we talked about the underpinnings of nationalism, learned about a new project from one of Lumpen's own, and discussed the foolhardiness of trying to restart professional sports during a pandemic. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for July 10th, 2020. Chuck Mertz spoke with Richard Seymour about the underpinnings of nationalism. Why has this toxic far-right ideology gained currency, and how has the Internet served to promulgate it worldwide? This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Bill Clinton back in 1992, it's the economy, stupid. We heard Pat Buchanan saying this. We heard this over and over within media analysis. It's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. What was missed? It, it almost, it seems like intentionally, what was missed in that framing of it being the economy, stupid? Well, I mean, that wasn't entirely wrong. I mean, it had a certain basis because the economy was, uh, in relative terms, um, kind of doing well. And it was doing just well enough to keep just enough people on side um, in what was becoming quite a brutal, um, one might say, neoliberal system. Okay, so, um, and at the same time, um, and this is quite an important part of the story, um, in order to cope with some of the dysfunctions um, and antagonisms that arose during that period when, you know, people sometimes were working for jobs uh, to keep their families alive, you know, during that time in which, um, you know, you could get you could get work, you could get pay, but things could be quite rough. Um, public services would be cut. Um, there was permanent light austerity, if you like. Um, but, you know, there was just enough money in the economy to keep it all going. Well, one of the ways they dealt with that was by promoting this kind of uh, autocratic, securitarian nationalism. And this wasn't coming from the far right. It wasn't coming from conservatives. It was coming from New Labour in Britain, um, from the Socialist Party in France. Um, and, you know, from liberals uh, in Canada and, you know, the Democrats uh, promoted their version of it in the United States. So um, I just want to say that although what we're confronting now is a version of conservative nationalism, uh, it has roots, it has origins in a turn to the right uh, in official liberalism. And uh, you can particularly trace this back to, for example, September 11th and the way in which a big chunk of the liberal intelligentsia turned to the lunatic Islamophobic right um, in the years following that. Um, and they have, uh, many of those same people today are outright conservative nationalists. In the UK context, they would be Brexiteers. So that's the, that's the background, I think. So why does neoliberalism lead to conservative nationalism? Do you think that that was the intent? Was this just a mistake along the way? Liberals thinking, oh, you know, we'll have this new version of liberalism that will be more market-oriented, more public-private partnership, and this is going to work out great. Or do you think that this was the intent to bring about conservative nationalism? Oh, no, I don't think it was any intent at all. I mean, they, they, the people um, uh, behind... Uh, what you call neoliberalism, were uh, you know um, firm believers in globalization, in global liberalism, um, in uh, a, a more fully connected world, but a world connected on the terms that would be supported by the U.S. Treasury, Wall Street, 
um, and various liberal uh, multilateral institutions, which would promote privatization, um, which would promote a streamed, streamlined public sector, which would put pressure on welfare systems, and generally speaking, um, elevate, um, in Marxist terminology, the rate of exploitation of the of labor. Okay, so um, I think that's what they wanted, but. At the same time, you know, neoliberalism was never pure. I mean, in no iteration, perhaps the most uh, combative neoliberal um, in history was Margaret Thatcher. I mean, I suppose you could say Ronald Reagan, but I think uh, that Thatcher was more ideologically committed to specifically neoliberalism than he was. But Thatcher was also a pretty right wing nationalist. And the reason for that uh, was partly that's just because how she felt about the world. She had a pretty petty bourgeois upbringing. She understood the life world, the prejudices of Middle England, um, and she didn't even have to think about it to echo those prejudices. So that's one part of it. But another part of it is that um, in order to build a political coalition um, whereby you can uh, unite really very different groups of people who expect different things out of life and want different things out of you as a politician, you have to offer something that stitches those uh, coalitions together. Um, and nationalism happened to be one way of doing that. Um, you know, so for Thatcher, the idea was uh, we're going to save Britain from uh, national decline. We're going to save Britain from military decline. You know, we'll go to war with the Falklands. Uh, we're going to save Britain from the enemy within by beating the IRA and beating the unions. Uh, all of this stuff was consubstantial with, or at least coextensive with, this sort of neoliberal drift. And when New Labour in this country got into office, uh, they had a, uh, you know, a progressive uh, moment here and there. But um, when there were riots in the north of England, um, uh, which were prompted by racism, local authority council cuts, police violence, fascist uh, marching on the uh, on local areas, all of that stuff, um, they responded by racializing it, by saying that the problem was Asian communities who self-segregated and didn't integrate into the national community. So that language of na nationhood and of belonging, which is almost always exclusionary, um, was available to them as a, as a technology of government, as a way of keeping control and as a way of um, organizing their response to emerging challenges. And so in the context of the war on terror, they just ramped that up. They militarized it and they just made it 10 times worse. If you want to understand why Brexit happened, why the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage and so on, uh, emerged to, to a position of strength, uh, that's the context that you have to look at. You have to trace it back um, to those roots. So what was, what was missed in their understanding then of neoliberalism when they thought it would lead to globalization and instead it led to conservative nationalism? What didn't they understand about neoliberalism or what did they overlook about neoliberalism that it wouldn't lead to the, system, the global system they thought it would? Well, they got their global system, but in terms of the consent, in terms of popular um, belief in this system, um, what they overestimated was the uh, power of the wage packet. I mean, apart from anything else, we had the 2008 credit crunch. OK, so already that's beginning to erode consent. It's creating a crisis of authority. It's creating a crisis of legitimacy. The public institutions are already widely distrusted. So you've got this crisis. And uh, in the background, you've, you've had these nationalist ideologies circulating for a long time. But people start to want... First of all, some sense of meaning in their lives. 
I mean, it's not just about the money they've got. The money can enable you to sustain some sort of meaningful life for a while. But people want some sort of collective um, enjoyment of being together. And finding ways of doing that in the modern era, when the unions have been smashed, when the old traditions of the carnivalesque uh, in the streets, you know, um, you think about the sort of um, the massive cultural entity that, for example, the Italian Communist Party represented in the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, like uh, that, that was a way of creating meaning, thinking about the cultures of cooperativism and grassroots laborism in the, in the United Kingdom um, prior to neoliberal era. That created a fabric of meaning. It, it had its dark sides, of course, but the point was that people had ways of being together and of enjoying one another and um, of, um, of, of a kind of shared identity and love um, that neoliberalism really doesn't make space for. It doesn't have the space for that. And hence, the only sort of collective um, uh, sort of frenzies that we're allowed um, are tend to be sort of nationalist spectacles like the Olympics, like the World Cup or some sort of football game, or uh, like the in, in this country we have like royal weddings and jubilees and things like that. Um, things where the, the, the symbol that you're rallying behind is uh, the, the national flag. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, that's the basis of this. But here's the thing. We talk about, uh, you know, loving our country, being patriots, loving the flag, all the rest of it. But that has to be always subtended somewhere by violence and hate. And you just have to look at what happens when you have these spectacles. Look at the football pitches. Look at the ecstatic, um, riotous feelings that people have sharing these moments of triumph and defeat together. And then look how frequently it turns to violence, you know, riots on the streets, football fans mauling one another and so on. I mean, that's a pretty obvious example. Um, but nationalism tends to do that. Um, and so there might be something going on here that doesn't have to do with, you know, uh, economic self-interest, enlightened self-interest, you know, uh, with the pay packet. Um, and if you look at this country, look at the people who voted for Brexit. Now, there are all sorts of reasons that people voted for Brexit uh, to leave the European Union, which is this, uh, you know, an, an, an instance of globalization, if you like, or, or at least a sort of liberal trading alliance. Um, to leave that, the main thrust of the campaign to leave was anti-immigrant. It was racist. Um, and if you look at it, um, the polls show that the people who support this would be prepared to see a lot of uh, loss of their material well-being, such as they have of it, um, in order to get that achieved. They would be happy to see the economy damage, that's 60% of them. 40% would be happy to lose their own jobs. You know, they'd be happy to see their friends and family lose their jobs. Conservative Party rank-and-file militants who love Brexit would be happy to see the economy tank. They'd be happy to see the union, the United Kingdom, break up. They'd be happy to see their own party destroyed. Those were, were what the polls were telling us. People became really invested in this idea. And it's worth thinking about... What is it that Brexit offered when it wasn't offering, palpably wasn't offering, any improvement to their material circumstances?
Badhead Sports talked to Sadie Woods about the recent re-release of her project, It Was a Rebellion Mixtape. Woods discusses her research process and her personal evolution as a DJ and artist. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. And we are joined in the studio by a fellow, a fellow WLPN uh, Chicago radio host and so much more, Sadie Woods. Welcome to the show, Sadie. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be here in conversation with you and Ryan. I, it's so good that we are using Zoom so that we can pretend like we're in person because Sadie is rocking the the leopard combo <laughs> fanny pack and mask of my dream quarantine fashion life. Um, and I know Instead that you not have to be been... Met. We'll post a photo. Um, yeah. I know that you have been super extremely uh, productive and busy during this whole period. So, I mean, you need to be seen. Um, but yeah, let's jump right into it. You're on the show to talk about your, I guess, not exactly new, but re-released uh, mixtape called It Was a Rebellion. Um, and so, yeah, I guess just, can you just tell us like, what is, it was a rebellion and give us a little overview. Yeah. So I started doing, uh, research on riots in the sixties in the U S in 2017. I was looking particularly at Detroit, um, for their 50th anniversary of the, of the Detroit rebellion that happened. Um, and I ended up developing the project further and looking at the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination um, and the riots that happened on the west side of Chicago and ended up developing this piece um, based off of that. And um, it was an exploration of how riots are talked about in the media and depicted outside of the communities that were affected by the social, political um circumstances at the time. And through my research, I found that a lot of the coverage was from an outsider's perspective where um, there wasn't any real uh, addressing of the circumstances that create these um, types of responses from communities of color, Black communities um, that were happening across the United States in the 60s. And in particular, here in Chicago with the assassination of King, there was a specific response because of his work that he was doing on the West side um, and on the South side of Chicago. And so I felt it was important to develop the work um, to bring, to center the perspective of the community um, and also explore that through like political speeches, um, ephemeral sounds and also music um, to create the social context of the work. Well, it, uh, when I was listening to the mixtape and it, it kind of starts with, well, it starts with a, uh, kind of like a news clip and then it goes into MLK speaking. And I was so, uh, I know that you started working on this project before, but it felt really prescient because of the way that I feel like since there have been protests and various demonstrations in response to the 
murder of George Floyd and so many others, uh, MLK kind of is always present. And the speech that you are uh, quoting, sampling in the mixtape, I feel like it gets twisted in so many different directions. And so it was kind of interesting that that is feels like the center of like the inspiration for the mixtape. Um, and I don't know, I'm just curious how you like, how it felt to you to kind of have that language being at the center of both sides. Like when you're talking about other people from the outside using language kind of against the black community or against communities who are, who need to kind of be telling their own story. Yeah, I feel like the conversation around protests, riots, um, anarchists, um, rebellions are is complicated. It's not black and white. There's many different ways of expressing rage. Um, and there's also, also different types of agitations that happen historically within uh, rebellions that have happened, right? It's not always the black community that, that starts the rioting. And we've seen that with these with this, the protest that we just had uh, nationwide. Um, and I also, aside from that, felt it was important with communities that are already hyper-policed to not police how people respond to the social political events that are happening or have happened um, in their response to these oppressive systems or these carceral systems that have um, impacted the community for, for decades. And there's a lot of conversation, especially on social media, where people feel like they have free range to say whatever um, whatever they want about how people are responding. Um, there, was, there was just a lot of critique around how Black people are responding or damaging property or people valuing property over talking about the actual circumstances that created um, these systems that are killing people, you know, killing Black people. Um, at a frequent rate. And even like with, with us being in a pandemic, which I, I think um, is what kind of elevated this to, or heightened everything to a, a different level. Um, you still have people having these, I think are pretty ridiculous conversations about property more so than talking about um, the police or <laughs> the killings that kept happening, you know, in the middle of a pandemic and then how people are actually risking their own safety to be out in protest against what's, what's been happening. Right. There's, it's just, uh, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think the word, the word riot in that sense becomes so kind of politicized or twisted and uh, you know, it kind of, I think like, naming the like kind of using the word riot but then naming the piece rebellion and kind of feels like almost like a call and response within the piece and kind of forced me like or you know I think we should all be forced to think about like the ways in which we understand like what is a riot what is a response what is like appropriate action and then I think you know kind of woven throughout the mixtape it it kind of gives you like more and more context in that respect. Um, And, you know, throughout the mixtape, I think I was kind of, when I was listening to it, I was really 
uh, I don't know, I was like pushed to do a lot of interesting research. And I was very curious about like the research that you did or kind of the, there's the research of finding the clips. And then I think also like the way that you, the way that you kind of orchestrate that experience when you're listening to the piece. Um, which is maybe not a question so much as an observation, but I don't know. I'm really like curious about kind of the, like the artists and individuals that I was less familiar with, like Elaine Brown's song, um, is so fascinating Mm -hmm. and like learning about her legacy too. And I'm, yeah, I guess, uh, I'm kind of curious, like, are these all kind of, pieces and inferences that you've already had in your repertoire? Are there anything new that you kind of you discovered in crafting this piece that kind of jumps out or is super interesting? Yeah, with looking at Detroit first, I was thinking about Motown, like what was happening with Motown and how they really pushed to have this very clean image and not be associated with protests at all. They didn't want any association. But after these events have happened, they um, started a sister label, the Black Forum label that was around for like three years and released um, a series of recordings from King, also from Elaine Brown, uh, from Stokely Carmichael, veterans from the Vietnam War, you know, these more like um, politicized recordings. And and they were forced, right, to have to address these issues, right? They couldn't afford to no longer uh, be silent on the issues that were affecting even the community of, of artists that they were representing. Um, and so through that research, I also learned that H. Rap Brown from the Black Panther Party was also partially responsible for um, popularizing dancing in the streets because he would play that song under his uh, public speeches. And so it became associated <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> with protests, you know, after that. So um, it, it became, um, you know, something that Motown had to confront, right? They could no longer run away from these like uh, political associations. And so I wanted to in- incorporate um, some of that and in in, in reimagine like what that might have that what that experience might have been like by putting together like some of his speeches with dancing in the streets underneath it. Um, and then also including like Elaine Brown, who was a part of the, of the Black Panther Party who put out records, right? Um, and then looking at the the Watts poets, for example, that were speaking up on the rise that were happening in Watts. Um, and then looking at more contemporary music that is in conversation with what has happened in the past um, and speaking on like our current our current uh, ex- experiences within our movement as well. Size matters. Size matters. Smith, Kyle, Seisman, Kowski. Oh, hey man, you have another heart attack? Oh, Jess, oh, geez. you gotta get me off the streets. No, oh, somebody finally cashed that check. Jess, you gotta believe me, it's much too hot out here. It's like. 65 degrees, Kyle. Yes. Come on. Uh, okay, okay. But if uh, this is just, another just, attempt to sort you. my underwear, I'm kicking your ass out into a fire barrel. 
Guess I have the seed of our future in my hand. All right, what, what is the plot? Yes, yeah, stop flopping around. This is serious. This is crazy serious. I have in my pocket right here enough to open a diaper dispensary. Oh, you got it? I did it. Our own diaper dispensary, Jess. It's the biggest grab since the alligator in Humble Park last summer. How the hell are you going to afford ah! that? How the hell did you Where get did in you? here, John? What, what are you talking about? You guys ran into the radio station, and you're sitting on my lap. Oh, so I am. Can you get up? No. No. So, uh, but what do you mean, afford that? It's like 50 grand for a growing license. Non-refundable. Not true, Johnny boy. I got the crafts license. Uh... I have to say, Kyle seems surprisingly up on the new law here. What are you doing here? You ran into the radio station, Jess, and and Kyle's doing something really disgusting with my shoes. Those aren't shoes. Those are Crocs. Kyle, my wife gave these to me. I got one on you, Johnny. The craft license is my ticket right out of the basement. The craft license is $5,000, and it's meant for... Underprivileged folk like myself. Yes, but... Wait, hold on a sec. You don't think I'm underprivileged? It's... (laughs) Like, basically the name of his neighborhood? No, Hold that's on a not. Sec. Are you racist to Undertown, John Boy? Wow, that is not yeah, a this... good look. Oh, no, John, that's John, not. Johnny Boy, I am so deeply wounded by your statements. Uh-oh. How does it feel to be canceled? Wait, that's not. <laughs> oh, Listen, as <laughs> Kyle's oh, emotional support animal and with his power said. of attorney, oh, I... What the ship? This is uh, clearly oh, harassment, geez. and... As my client... Okay, Jess, cut the, cut the crap. Here's 20 bucks. Thank you. Holy shit. I still have no idea why you guys burst in here. And why the hell are you still on John's lap? It's kind of plushy. Like, I'm really cozy here. <sighs> Fine. The truth is, Kyle actually had a great idea. Thank you. I know I did, yes. And Thank you. in Kyle's pocket, he has our ticket to financial freedom. I do. Now behold. Uh, uh, that looks like a cotton diaper what else would it be Uh, what the hell kyle i gave you money to go out and buy like seeds or plants or cuttings jess a diaper dispensary doesn't use seeds kyle what the heck do you think a dispensary sells Uh, it's a diaper dispensary john a diaper dispensary i got this great place on 55th i got the license and everything it's gonna be great (sighs) kyle what what just remember radio manners come on i don't care where did the money go? Swaddling tape and these fancy ads. Come experience swaddling like never before. <sighs> I'm I'm completely at sea, Kyle. And that's new even for you this You guys segment. don't get it. Jess is an expert swaddler. She can wrap a man like Kyle, I told you this probably violates my plea yes, deal. the alderman has been ringing my drop phone off the hook. I tell you, this is our ticket to the big time. The alderman? And I might have a relationship with him or her, depending. Uh... As heard in Size Matters 81. But I'm telling you, people will pay to be swaddled, wrapped in a soothing cloth, and told everything's gonna be okay. Uh. You just wait. Welcome to the South Shore Green Diaper Spensary. Can I help um, you? Um, um, is the swaddler available? She sure is. There, there. Isn't that comfortable? It's like being held by mommy. Ugh. Kyle, I... We've already made 1,500 simoleons today, Jess. Oh, yeah? 1,500s. And really? we're booked into next year. Yeah, excuse me, swaddler. I'm chafing. Christ. Who knew everyone was so competitive about whose baby? Excuse me, I'm really oh, chafing. Oh, coming. I'll be right there with some soothing talc.
This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump doubles down on racist pandering, coronavirus cases explode as Fauci warns the first wave is not over, ICE looks to kick foreign students out of the USA, Mary Trump's tell-all leaks, Trump's swamp sucked billions from federal aid, Trump's new virus plan is people will die, get over it, and the court tells Trump, release your taxes. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1261, July 3rd. Former presidential candidate Herman Cain was hospitalized with COVID-19. Cain was at a rally in Tulsa and was in close proximity with other attendees. At least eight Trump advanced team staffers at the Tulsa rally also tested positive. Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, has also tested positive. Trump Jr. and Guilfoyle were spotted maskless last Saturday at a Hamptons, New York party with 100 other maskless guests. Coronavirus cases have jumped an alarming 87%. Texas Governor Greg Abbott suddenly reversed course and required all people to wear masks. He had previously opposed attempts by mayors and local officials to require the use of face masks. Also in California, Governor Gavin Newsom announced the mandatory closure of bars, restaurants, movie theaters, zoos, and museums. That affects 70% of that state. ICE told international students pursuing degrees in the U.S. they will have to leave the country if their universities switch to online-only courses for the fall semester. The announcement came as some colleges and universities, including Harvard and MIT, have announced they will hold online-only courses this fall amid the pandemic. Day 1262, the 4th of July. Trump gave a belligerent address in front of Mount Rushmore claiming that angry mobs are seeking to unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities and those seeking to deface monuments want to end America. Trump also claimed that Black Lives Matter protesters who have won broad public support, including from corporate America, quote, were not interested in justice or healing. Trump then warned of a growing danger to the values of the nation through a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. Quote, make no mistake, this left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American Revolution. Trump then claimed that media outlets routinely slander him and falsely and consistently label their opponents as racist. Trump made no mention of the death toll from coronavirus, and his speech came on a weekend when our death toll reached 130,000 people. The U.S. ambassadors to Uruguay, France, Morocco, and Italy sold stock during the early days of the coronavirus outbreak. All of those ambassadors have been longtime Republican donors. Some gave to Trump's 2016 campaign for president and his inauguration. Records show the transactions occurred in January and continued throughout February. Similar transactions made by U.S. congressmen are under FBI investigation. Day 1263, July 5th. The Commerce Department is blocking the release of an investigation into whether it pressured the head of the NOAA into supporting Trump's false claim that Hurricane Dorian was going to hit Alabama. Inspector General Peggy Gustafson said that Wilbur Ross's staff had, quote, thwarted the publication of her report, claiming that portions of it contain information that cannot be made public without specifying what those portions were. Gustafson said the department's move, quote, appears to be directly linked to the content of our report and the findings and responsibility of the high-level individuals involved. Ross himself has been directly linked to pressuring the then head of the NOAA. An investigation into that said it was unethical. The Republican National Convention is reportedly paying a former celebrity apprentice producer. The 2020 RNC paid more than $66,000 to a firm run by Chuck LaBella for production consulting services. LaBella was once accused of, quote, having all the dirt on Trump. 
At least 40 lobbyists with ties to Trump received $10 billion in coronavirus aid. The lobbyists either worked in the Trump administration, served on his campaign, were part of the inauguration, or were part of his transition, and many are donors to Trump's campaign. Among the recipients were Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao's family business, Agricultural Secretary Sonny Purdue's trucking company, and a business partner of Trump in a hotel and residential tower in Hawaii. Also, companies tied to Trump family members and associates were approved for up to $21 million in loans from the Paycheck Protection Program. A Dallas megachurch whose pastor sits on Trump's Evangelical Advisory Board was approved for a forgivable loan worth $5 million. The school where Barron Trump is a student was also approved for $5 million. The attorney who represented Trump in the Mueller investigation, as well as dozens of tenants of Trump's real estate company, also received money. And 22 companies at 40 Wall Street, an office building Trump owns in Lower Manhattan, received a combined total of at least $16.6 million in loans. That largesse also included money lavished on billionaires, well-connected DC firms, and several major chains. P.F. Chang's and the Silver Diner, each of which have private equity investors, received millions of dollars in loans. Kanye West's Yeezy brand, which made $1.3 billion last year, also got money. And so did the Church of Scientology. Day 1264, July 6th. It was a muted, even surreal holiday weekend as it became evident Americans were in no mood to celebrate. Coronavirus cases continue to rage across the South and West, with Texas saying their hospitals are now overwhelmed. However, vicious partisan politics stoked by Trump have led to dangerous divides, with some openly disregarding orders to wear masks and claiming their politicians are, quote, enthralled to the far left. The FDA said that Trump's claim that, quote, 99% of coronavirus cases are harmless is false. Calling such language a serious problem, the FDA reminded all Americans to wear a mask in public. Coronavirus cases continue to ebb in our state, but cases nationwide continue to surge, with an 87% week-over-week increase. Florida, California, and Houston, Texas continue to be the hardest hit, and Chicago declared a 14-day quarantine for anybody entering from one of 14 states. The White House's new message to Americans that they need to learn to, quote, live with the virus being a threat. The goal is to convince Americans to accept an escalating death toll and tens of thousands of new cases a day while pushing for schools to reopen and professional sports to return. The approach now mirrors that of Sweden, which sought no economic benefit to avoiding a lockdown and is now suffering huge fatalities due to the virus. In a new round of digital ads, the committee to re-elect Trump asked people to support him as he, quote, stands up to the angry mobs trying to tear down iconic memorials. The ad pictures the Christ the Redeemer statue, which of course is located in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. No word on how Trump will defend that. Trump attacked black NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace, tweeting has, quote, Bubba Wallace apologized to all of those great NASCAR drivers and officials who came to his aid, stood by his side, and were willing to sacrifice everything for him, only to find out that the whole thing was just another hoax. That and flag decision has caused lowest ratings ever. Wallace, in fact, was not the one to report the incidents of a noose formed in his bay. A photo of the door pull rope clearly showed it indeed was a noose, and it has never been suggested that that was a hoax. Wallace responded by saying, quote, always deal with the hate being thrown at you with love, even when it's hate from the POTUS. Trump also attacked the NFL and baseball, quote, they named teams out of strength, not weakness, but now the Washington Redskins and Cleveland Indians, two fabled sports franchises, look like they're going to be changing their names in order to be politically correct. Indians like Elizabeth Warren must be very angry right now. A federal judge also ruled the Dakota Access Pipeline must be shut down by August 5th. 
The judge said the federal officials failed to do a complete analysis of its environmental impacts as required under the National Environmental Policy Act. The decision marks the second setback for Trump's infrastructure plan in just two days. Two energy companies behind the Atlantic Coast Pipeline abandoned their six-year bid to build it two days ago. Day 1265, July 7th. Dr. Fauci said the country was still, quote, knee-deep in the first wave of the pandemic and is a, quote, serious situation we have to address immediately. In a tacit swipe at Trump, Fauci compared the United States unfavorably with Europe, which he now said was merely handling viral blips. Through the start of July, the United States has reported its three largest daily case totals. 14 states recorded single-day highs. 250,000 new cases have been reported. There are now about 3 million total cases in the USA. Houston says it is close to being overwhelmed with full hospital beds. In California, the government is closing indoor operations of businesses. In Chicago, the city fined five businesses over the 4th of July holiday and shut down a party boat on Lake Michigan. In Georgia and Mississippi, the virus has hit state houses, with the mayor of Atlanta testing positive and Mississippi Speaker of the State House of Representatives being just one of several lawmakers who fell ill. Mike Pompeo said the USA is looking at banning TikTok and other Chinese apps. Pompeo told Fox News, quote, the United States will get this one right. Pompeo claimed Americans should only download TikTok if you want your private information in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. In fact, while TikTok is based in Beijing, it is run by an American and stores its data in the U.S. TikTok has drawn the ire of Trump after a well-publicized campaign on the network to sabotage his rallies. The Republican National Convention said it will test attendees for COVID-19 on a daily basis in Jacksonville. The attendees will actually be tested for COVID-19 and not just given a basic health screening before they enter the V-Start Veterans Memorial Arena. Jacksonville has also mandated face masks. A tell-all book by Trump's niece describes a family riven by a series of traumas, exacerbated by a daunting patriarch who destroyed Trump by, quote, short-circuiting his ability to develop and experience the entire spectrum of human emotion. Calling Fred Trump a high-functioning sociopath, niece Mary Trump said Trump's view of the world was shaped by his desire during childhood to avoid his father's disapproval. Among the claims in the book are that Trump paid someone to take his SATs for him and that he has been a serial liar his entire life. He is essentially a child in a man's body. Day 1266, July 8th. New outbreaks of coronavirus are now surging through churches where services have resumed in the United States. Churches have been linked to at least 650 cases. The day also set another record with 54,000 confirmed cases in the U.S. At least six states set new records for caseloads, and Arizona, Mississippi, and Texas set records for fatalities. Dr. Fauci called Trump's recent focus on the coronavirus's decreasing mortality rate a false narrative, and that by getting infected, you're propagating this pandemic. Trump, of course, pushed all churches and houses of worship to open back in May. White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany claimed the U.S. is now the leader in the fight against coronavirus. This is partially true. The U.S. now leads the world in both cases and deaths from COVID-19. Bizarrely claiming that governors are seeking to keep schools closed for, quote, political statements or political reasons, Trump said he would exert pressure on governors to reopen the schools. It is unclear if schools can reopen given social distancing rules and research that shows that while children seem to be less affected by COVID-19, they in fact can become large-scale spreaders. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, meanwhile, claimed there is, quote, no excuse for schools not to reopen, saying, quote, adults who are fear-mongering and making excuses simply have got to stop doing it and turn their attention on what is right for students and for their families. 
DeVos did not offer, in fact, any concrete proposals or offer any additional funding. And in a related story, several states are now suing DeVos and the Department of Education over his decision to divert COVID-19 relief funding from K-12 public schools and give it to private schools. California, Michigan, Maine, New Mexico, Wisconsin, and D.C. claim the Education Department unlawfully interpreted the CARES Act, which has led to tens of millions of dollars being diverted from public schools in poor districts being given to private schools with tuition rates that are similar to private universities. Trump formally notified the United Nations the U.S. is withdrawing from the World Health Organization, cutting off one of the organization's biggest sources of aid during a pandemic that has changed the world we live in. Trump has tried to shift blame for his own response to the pandemic to who in China. Trump said he wants Congress to pass another stimulus package before lawmakers leave for the August recess. Trump claimed he wanted to send more than $1,200 to Americans, but his officials want to keep the cost at $1 trillion or less. President Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil tested positive for the coronavirus. He responded by appearing in public Tuesday saying he felt well without a mask. Bolsonaro, taking cues from Trump, has been taking hydrochloroquine and foregone wearing masks and social distancing. He has also faced withering criticism for his cavalier handling of the pandemic. Under his watch, Brazil has seen 1.6 million cases and 65,000 deaths. The U.S. is to pay the vaccine maker Novavax $1.6 billion to expedite the development of 100 million doses of a coronavirus vaccine. Part of Operation Warp Speed, this is a big bet on a company which has never brought a vaccine to market. It is also at least the second big investment in a vaccine, with $1.2 billion given to the British drug maker AstraZeneca. Day 1267, July 9th. The Supreme Court today dealt a major blow to Trump, overwhelmingly ruling that a Manhattan prosecutor can demand his tax returns. The 7-2 decision means that Mazars USA, his longtime accountant, and which holds those documents, will now turn them over. The decision is also a rejection of Trump's claim that he is absolutely immune from investigation as president and could affect other cases currently before courts. Trump is also sued to prevent congressional oversight of his advisors. The case firmly reestablishes the separation of powers as enshrined in the Constitution and says Congress indeed has oversight over the executive branch. Trump is also three months late in filing a mandatory financial disclosure form. Breaking with the White House, Dr. Fauci today called for a second shutdown for certain states. Saying a total closure might be the best move for states struggling with burgeoning coronavirus cases and hospitalizations, Fauci's words were echoed by other public health experts as daily cases continued to soar in the South and West. The positivity rate in Southern states is hitting alarming new levels, with Arizona seeing a stunning 25% rate to lead the nation. Texas is now seeing a 20% rate, and Houston officials there ordered the Texas Republican Party's convention canceled. Florida is close to 15%, and the USA also set a daily case record with 60,000. There's also now a major outbreak in Tulsa with at least 600 cases. City fathers there connect that outbreak to the Trump rally that was held there two weeks ago. The Supreme Court did give Trump a win in carving out a giant exception for women's reproductive health ruling that employers with religious or moral objections can refuse to pay for birth control. That decision affects some 126,000 women who get birth control from their employer's insurance. It affects any non-publicly traded company who can now refuse to cover the cost of any medication that can be used as a contraceptive. Companies already had a way to avoid paying for those costs by filing a form under Obamacare, but the group suing Little Sisters of the Poor claimed that was onerous and the court agreed. Trump threatened to cut off federal aid to schools that refused to fully reopen this fall. 
He also assailed new guidelines issued by his own Centers for Disease Control that recommended a slew of costly preventative measures that would bring the nation's children back to school safely. The CDC said it would subsequently issue new guidance after Trump called the existing guidelines too tough and very impractical. Claiming again the desire to keep schools closed is somehow politically motivated, Trump threatened to block urgently needed funding. Education groups estimate they need at least $200 billion in additional money to reopen next year. The threat carries weight as Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has wide latitude in how she disperses these funds. New York City has already said it will not open schools more than three days a week. In a related story, Harvard and MIT are suing to block a Trump directive that would strip foreign college students of their visas if their coursework moves entirely online. The universities are arguing the policy is politically motivated. The directive is widely seen as an effort to pressure universities into reopening despite the pandemic still raging. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who was fired from the White House after testifying against Trump during the impeachment hearings, has quit the military after what his lawyer called a campaign of bullying, intimidation, and retaliation from the president. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's concern over a phone call between Trump and the Ukrainian president led to a Senate trial where Republicans acquitted Trump without calling witnesses. The statement said Vindman had retired after 21 years of military service because his future would, quote, be forever limited. 60% of Americans say they find reports of Russian bounties on American soldiers to be very believable. 91% of Americans believe racism and police violence are a problem in the U.S. Just 36% of Americans now approve of Trump's performance overall. That is his lowest polling number to date. These are the Trump Diaries. Mario Smith chatted with Corey Richardson about the rush to restart professional sports in the midst of a pandemic. Why has there been so much pressure to restart the games, and is it even possible to play football this year? News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. We started talking about that sense of loss. There was so much. The, 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 the outlook for 2020 was this is the year that we, we really get it, because this is the 20th year of 2000s, right? This is when we start to really show what we have done, and then boom, just like, oh, you got to stay home. I mean, at my gig at the, at the, uh, at the promontory, the, our last day officially was St. Patrick, no, March 12th, I'm sorry. And March 12th, leaving there that night, I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to work here again. And that's just, and, and still don't know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Four months mm-hmm. later, not, not sure what is going to happen. And with that in mind, the country outside of Illinois and a few other states north, the, most of the South was like, you know what, screw you. We're, we're, we're opening and we don't care about the coronavirus anymore because we got it under control listening to someone that has absolutely no idea what is going on in the president and 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 promoting the 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 go outside, be free, have fun, hook up, do your thing. And now we're seeing the results of that. Um, one of the reports that came out during the week, everybody was concerned about how the protests would affect the numbers of COVID-19 rising. And it doesn't seem that 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 was it. It seems that the problem has been in bars, restaurants, places where you gather in small numbers, creating a bigger outbreak. Where, Where are we, man? I mean, at some point, this has to like end, right? But where are we? So here's 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 what we, we we have to think about, and you have to draw kind of red lines between vectors and go. Well, why are these things alike? So one of the places that we see major outbreaks of COVID is um, meatpacking plants, right? Mm-hmm. 
But we also see, and so that was where a lot of the stuff was breaking out in the Midwest and parts of the rural South were in meatpacking plants. And it's because it's a loud environment where people stand close to each other and have to yell. Mm -hmm. All right. Now you're yelling, you're spitting out particulates. So you're putting all kinds of COVID into the air. What is another place where people are packed close together that's loud and they yell? A bar. Yeah. So, yeah, a bar is essentially recreating a similar environment to a meatpacking plant, except you're there voluntarily <laughs> and you're getting drunk, so you're definitely not being <laughs> responsible. And so, yeah, it, it's it's kind of like, now that we've gotten this far, it's my opinion. I'm not a medical professional. I'm not any of these things. It's my opinion that we are, until there is some type of vaccine or treatment, we're going to have to be content living in some form of phase three for the next six to 12 months. We're, we're back in quarantine in a few months, you think? Well, I, no, I think phase three, where, you know, we're not, the people who don't have to leave the house don't leave the house, mm -hmm. right? where people who can work from home do work from home, where people are not sitting inside restaurants, but people can still order curbside, where you're not, you know, having big gatherings, but you can have small socially distanced gatherings. But I think we're gonna be in phase three, basically, this is what this is what life is until we get, get a treatment. Because I don't see us going back to a full lockdown because I don't think we need a full lockdown. I think we're smart enough now about the virus that we don't need to just be in the house. Right. Right. Because the whole idea behind that full lockdown was we don't want to overtop our resources. Right. 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 I think phase two was more about, again, you know, flattening the curve and making sure that, because uh, think about it, we didn't know how this thing really spread. Right. Like, my wife was scared to order pizza because she didn't want it to come in on a pizza box. Right, right, for sure. Right, for sure, so, for sure, for sure. So now that we know, okay, it's primarily transmission through, you know, particulates that come out of your mouth and your nose. Uh, it's primarily through, pro, you know, not not a few seconds of contact, but you got to have a few minutes of contact with somebody in an enclosed environment. It's spread through air conditioners. You shouldn't be somewhere where you're yelling or singing, Right. You should wear a mask at all times when you're outside your house. Now that we have all those little mitigation things in place, we can have something that looks like life, but it is nothing that's remotely close to normal. We're, we're, we're four months into a, a global pandemic, and the virus has not changed. Our behavior has, right? And so all of the positive results that you see are results of behavior change, not results of the virus changing. Right. So as long as we maintain the behaviors that we're operating with, we should be okay. It's when you get reckless, careless, and, and carefree and loose where you start to run into problems, right? That's when you can get hurt. Okay, well, last COVID part, and then I want to talk about the... Uh the uprising, if you will. There's not, I, I'm with you. They're not going to play football in the United States uh, this mm -hmm. fall. There's no way physically, if if what we are told is true, you can't, what you just said, you can't be in tight quarters. There's nothing tighter in athletics than a football team and, and, and particularly lining up right next to each other. There is a fair amount of spitting, screaming, and yelling. 
There's no way that they can play football in 2020-21, is it? No. And here's and, and I'll, I'll tell you the simple reason why. In order to adequately test every person involved with a football team in the National Football League, just the NFL, this is not college football, mm-hmm. just the NFL, you would have to scale up almost a million tests so that you mm. could play a 16-week season. Mm. Right? Yeah. Now, if you have a player who tests positive for COVID on Thursday and you got to quarantine everybody who that player's come in contact with for 10 to 14 days, who are you putting on the field on Sunday? <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> Not a soul. Yeah. Yeah, right. there is no minor league football uh, organization to bring people up. So, no. yeah, you're right. Your, your taxi squad's not going to be that big either. Yeah, they they can't play. And, and a football team travels with a complement of hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. And so to think that you are going to be able to travel across the country with hundreds of people, even without an audience, and not get someone impacted by this virus is foolish. And it's just, we have to be real. I mean, the NBA was the one league that was most likely to be able to pull it off just because of the size of the teams. Yeah. And even they're having trouble keeping players from getting infected. And it doesn't look like that might roll out as soon as they thought either. Mm-mm. I'm I, I'm I'm thinking baseball might be the only one that does it because they have a model to go by off of what has happened in Korea. But, um, but even that is suspect. That may get stopped. I don't think baseball is going to make it beyond maybe a couple of games. And I think that people are going to look at baseball and go, well, it's just not possible. This is A-W-C-Y-F-M. There are the bits of information that I've, I feel like I've absorbed while walking through this space. Um, I, I've gone back and forth on whether these, whether, whether these are voices that are speaking to me, um, whether it's in the, the, the spats of unconsciousness that I, that I, you know, that I absorb this information, that I learn this information from seemingly no, no coherent or, or, uh, present, uh, observable source, um, or whether uh, I've gone back and forth or, or whether I'm literally just absorbing it. From from the walls, from what I've seen, from from what I've thought, I feel I, I, I at times there there's I, I feel almost certain that something has spoken this wisdom to me, uh, wisdom that that somehow controls what rooms we go into. Uh, sometimes I get pathologic fears about entering through certain doors, as if somebody has warned me about what's on the other side of those doors. Um, sometimes I'm I'm just given given inf- information that I don't information about the news about current events that I don't learn about <laughs> that I don't I don't I can't <laughs> I can't factually verify for several more hours a- as if something something is is predicting them for me it's it's a it's a it's a fifth sense that I that I that I've not felt before well, I, well if it makes you feel any better I have also um been hearing the whispers um from various places, walls, it seems like, uh, although they 
they don't ever they never really make a lot of sense i can't really make it out and i don't it's hard to gauge if they're something's talking to me or just talking um yes there's it's 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 hard to gauge and i mean some of the we have seen some some of these doorways that we have opened or not opened um have seemed strange in their own way uh a lot of these doors have black viscous sort of gel Mm -hmm. tar coming out from the bottom of them some of these doors um don't have doorknobs or if they do have doorknobs they've been clearly like ripped off and paved over some of the there are some doors that have been some doorways that have been bricked up uh it's i don't know it's hard to um so we and and we have been seeing more of them as we continue to make our way deeper into the sphere which is part of the reason once again why we are trying to stay in the beer garden as long as possible Broadcast every Sunday, the Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.